This week on the In-Depth Podcast, racing legend Nikki Lauda. We're revisiting my 2017 chat with the late Formula One driver who won three world championships and whose rivalry with James Hunt was subject to the Ron Howard-directed film Rush. But there's so much more to Lauda than his racing career. He was also a licensed commercial pilot and aviation entrepreneur, starting three different airlines. Our time with Lauda spanned two different countries, a first for a single episode of our show. After spending a day with him in Vienna, Austria, we then hopped on his private jet for a flight to Belgium, where he gave us VIP access to the Grand Prix. During our sit-down, Lauda reflected on the near-fatal wreck that left him with severe burns to his face and head. He said, you know, the reason you're alive is that you stayed conscious for a while and did not give up to go in a sleeping mode. But it was a crash involving one of his airlines that affected him even more. This was a scene which I will never ever forget. It was the worst ever. There was my accident, nothing against what I saw down there. Lauda also opened up about going behind his family's back during his early racing days. My father said, where have you been over the weekend? And I said, does he know now? And his history with Hunt. What do you remember from sharing a London flat with him during your Formula three days? A lot of, uh, what do you call it, politely intercourse. <laughs> Not with me, I have to say. <laughs> That's all ahead. Plus, as the then non-executive chairman for the F1 Mercedes team, Lauda shared insight into the heated competition between Lewis Hamilton and his teammate. They had no relation, which is always bad. So they were so bad that they didn't even say hello in the morning to each other. But we began discussing his own mentality. So I actually wanted to start off by talking to you about uh, your personality, You've said you have no friends. This is true, and everybody gets upset about this. The problem is when you get known in the world, a lot of people bother you. They want to be your friend because, and this and that, and this is... Everybody needs something. Correct, and therefore I protected myself against these constant attacks Somebody says, I'm your friend, and can you do this, and can you do that, or I want an autograph, or whatever. And to stop all this, in a way, I protected myself and said, where are the real friends? A real friend is a 24-hour guy who can talk about any kind of problems you have. And I tell you, honestly, I would not know one where I would do that, because I protected myself. Your <coughs> ex-wife once said, during your racing career, um, you were the biggest in the world. Um, what do you think of that? No, she was completely right. Uh, she said egocentric too. Uh, because in my times where it was very dangerous to drive, uh, I had to put myself into a position that I 100% concentrate on my job. If I do a mistake, I kill myself. And I cannot be disturbed by anything of my 100% concentration, more or less to stay alive over the race weekend. That means you have to block everything out and then do the job. <clears throat> and this ended up in a way that she hated racing. She hated that I've been a racing driver because her reaction was logic, crazy. And I want her husband to be at home and stay alive. So, and therefore, she said all that, and from her point of view, she was right. But on the other hand, she said to me, 
after the accident, she was looking at me all the time, and I know what she was thinking. I hope he's going to stop now. I hope he's going to stop now. And I did not, because I wanted to prove to myself that I could overcome all these problems I had. And I wanted to see, after a terrible accident like this, can I be back on top again? So I understand her arguments, I understand her say uh, that I was an a she for sure thought about it sometimes. But in the end, she was a fantastic woman in these difficult situations for her to still support me 100%. You were <coughs> your number one priority basically during that time. Um, what about now? Now it's all different because first of all, I'm not racing anymore. <coughs> I have a normal life, I would say. None of this danger. And I changed completely. Honestly, what I had to go through in the past, which none of these people believe today, because in the 70s, 80s, these cars were so dangerous that every year one or two got killed. So you had to find your own way to cope with all that. And all this pressure is gone. So I think I'm a completely normal person now. How do you view punctuality? It's very simple. I'm always 15 minutes ahead of any time because I do not want to panic myself in the last moment. I always tell to myself, if I have puncture and I have to change my will, I still have to be on time. So punctuality is for me the number one rule for me, and I expect everybody else around me to be on time. How true is it <coughs> that you once left your then CEO at the airport for a plane that you were piloting because he showed up late? I didn't leave him there, but he will never do it again because <laughs> it was my first, my first uh, trip with Toto Wolf, which is uh, my partner in owning the Mercedes team. We run together the whole operation. I'm the chairman, he's the CEO. So we have a very close relation. We, we talk every day and, and, and whatever. But Toto is, is uh, <clears throat> what timing is on, always wrong and late and whatever. He's a different man, fine. But on the first trip to Japan, where he asked me if we can fly together, first one, I said, yes, be there at two, whatever the time was, and off we go. So I'm there 15 minutes to two, because I'm always on time. And Toto doesn't turn up, he doesn't turn up. And then he came 10 minutes past two. And then I said, listen, Toto, if you fly with me, we're a flight plan. We have to be on time in Tokyo and whatever. Anyway, I told him we, I can't operate like this. And then he said, yeah, sure, you're right. Then we had a long discussion about it and now it really works very well because I do not understand why people are late. If, if you wait for me, uh, I'll be there on time because I know you wait. This is a, a respect or, or normal for me. And I expect the same the other way around. But I don't know why people are always late. Why do they have this panic to run in? They're all sweating. And, ah, ah, ah. I had traffic. Yeah, everybody has traffic. I mean, it's simple to fix. The part who gets up early in the morning is even ready early in the afternoon or in the evening. This is my rule. Right. So you didn't leave him no, no, and no, take no. off for sure? <laughs> I didn't. That, but okay. I was close. I have to say I was close. Were yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. It, I don't like it, because if I come on time, I expect the other one to come home. What did your then CFO say to you once in the car that led you to kicking him out on the highway? In the airline business, I had a finance guy in Lauda Air working for me, actually. 
and he was a funny guy from the beginning. And uh, we drove to Salzburg. I took him with me because I had to go there. It was many years ago. And then he said to me, if you want me to continue, I want 10% of the company or 5%, can't remember. But he was working already for me. So, are you nuts? Why do you suddenly, why not, he says, why not? Without me, you cannot run the company. And therefore, I'm in this position now to ask you this. So I said, are you serious? Serious. I pay you, we work together, everything seems to work, and now you want to change everything. Yes, yes, I'm serious. So then I stopped and said, please, get out. And he said, what do you mean? No, I'm serious. Get out and find a way. And why should I drive you to Salzburg, first of all? And then you come and attack me in the middle of the road, which was stupid ideas. So then he went out, I left him there and left. What was his reaction? But then he never said anything about the percentage of the company. He worked better than before. Oh, you let him stay on? Yeah, he stayed, he stayed, okay. he stayed. Yeah, and everything was fine. You come from a very prominent <coughs> Austrian family. You had a, a chauffeur, cook. Um, how much, if at all, would you say you were spoiled growing up? We have a big house, and my father was the, the CEO of a very big company here in Austria. He had a driver, he had a car and everything. This was normal for me to grow up. And when uh, my mother decided that the driver of the father should take my brother and me to school, I said to the driver, don't stop in front of the school, stop one road before the school. And he said, why? I have to drop you off at the school. He said, no, please stop here. You're gonna walk there. So this was for me normal to be normal and not trying to show off with the driver and, and the car and all these kind of things. So my parents gave me the right education to, I think, to operate in a normal way. When you were growing up, at least at some point, you were an auto mechanic apprentice. Um, what happened during a routine oil change that affected your role there? I was so bad in school that um, my father decided this is, he has to do something. So he pulled me out of school and said, now you're gonna work in this place as a learning to be a mechanic. So at the time, school was so boring to me, I thought, why not, I learn something different. But when I realized the hard life there, I quickly changed my mind. But I had some couple of incidents there. The first one was, it was a big, big car shop where, I don't know, 30 or 40 people worked. And as I was the youngest coming in there, I had to take the notes. Who wants to eat at 10? What kind of sausages or this, how do you call it? This, this food you're gonna buy in the, in the food shop. So I made the list uh -huh. as good as I could. Then went and bought whatever they wanted. And I would say 50% was wrong. <laughs> because one wanted the sausage and the cheese and the other wanted the other way around. And so anyway, I didn't make myself very popular there because I always screwed one of these things up. Right. So one disaster. The next one was panic in the morning. Volvo comes in, oil change. A guy was waiting. He wants to go away quickly. And uh, my guy said, go down, let the oil come out of the thing. So I go down, look up, take this spanner, look at it turned, 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 couldn't open it. 
because I was so stupid that I turned it the wrong way around. Mm. And you impressed my legs against the wall, and funny enough, I broke the screw. <laughs> then I came up and said to my boss, uh, it doesn't open. So he went down, looked at the disaster, you're such an idiot. You turned it the wrong way around. And then he had to explain to this poor guy that the car has to stay for another two days <laughs> because the whole sump has to come off the engine, take it out of the car. So this was my experience. And then I thought, maybe it's better if I learn something properly. Then I went back to my father after three months there and said, I want to go back to school. And then he said, yes. And then uh, I left this experience and went back to school. How many times did you fail in school uh, during your education? Twice in the, in the gymnasium, it's called, in the third and the fifth. And then I was being a mechanic. Then I went back out, came back into the Matura school, which is called, you can go there and do your own study with some afternoon teachers and then go to the exams. So basically, I failed all the time, to be honest. I did all the exams except math and I think religion. There's an exam for religion in Austria. And, uh, and the other ones, all I did, and then I couldn't finish the last two ones. So I was again in Why school. couldn't you finish? Because there was time involved. I wanted to, to have my driving license already. I wanted to move on and, and had my own ideas, typical like a kid is. And then this uh, girl next to me said, look, I passed my exam and here's the, the whole thing in writing. <clears throat> the guy behind me said, why don't you take this, put your name on top of it, I can do that for you. And you show it to your stupid parents and then you have peace. <laughs> yeah, because I told him all the stories about it. Said, Why not? So I gave him this thing. Uh, he changed the name, but you could see from 100 meters that this was modified. Mm -hmm. Because it is so stupid that, that you could see it. Right. <clears throat> and then I went home. My parents there said, I passed the exam. Here it is. Put it right back into my pocket. Parents happy kissed me and everybody was pleased that finally I made it after this long journey to pass the exam. So immediately I threw this piece of paper away and I was released to do what I wanted to do. Yeah? And then I started to look for racing cars, Mini Coopers and so on. But this is the way I tried to get out of this mess, being a louder, educated person and going into the industrial business here in Austria and wanted to start my own way. And my own way at the time was to try to be a racing driver. Why did your parents forbid you from racing? Pure danger, logically. And the main concern was my crazy grandfather, who had a very stubborn, strong personality to say, you have to go into in the family business. Why would they care what your grandfather thinks? Because my grandfather was so dominating in the family, they educate, he educated my father. And the family philosophy in these days was the kids, when they are capable, have to follow the family's business. And this was the way I was brought up. How did your parents <coughs> find out you were racing behind their back? In these days, all I did, hooked a Mini up the back of a normal road car, 
And I did this with a friend of mine's father. I asked him for his car and he borrowed it to me. I went to, to Carinthia where the first race was going on and I raced there. I think I finished second or something. And uh, then I came home and then my father said, where have you been over the weekend? And I said, does he know now or not? I didn't, I didn't say anything before. And then I had to explain it to him, unfortunately, and he was really upset. But what did he more, say? More upset that I didn't tell him beforehand. So it was not really what I did, it was that I didn't tell him beforehand. And then I, I said, this was wrong. I should have brought him, my mother, no way. Should have brought in on my side and explained, this is what I like to do. But in the end, he accepted it, he had to. My mother too, but they, my mother especially didn't feel well because of logic, danger and all these kind of things. The father was more objective, I would say, to accept it. How true is it that you, you believe you wouldn't have as aggressively pursued racing had it not been for your grandfather being so against it? True, because he gave me an extra kick to fight him, uh, who was a strong man, to fight him for my own ideas. So it, it helped me to develop quicker out of this, let's say, louder, well-protected family business. Family business where everything was safe and good. Nobody had to fight for anything in our family at the time. And this particular fight I had with my grandfather, breaking these family rules and fighting the grandfather, gave me first of all the freedom to do what I wanted to and pushed me harder to be successful in a way. Explain how a bank told you you could move forward with your Formula One plans only to later back out of their responsibility. I was driving in Formula V, which is a low key formula and had a bank as a sponsor. They paid me very little money and uh, they were happy with my performance. They saw their pictures in the newspapers and everything worked well. And when I tried to go into the Formula One business, I needed something like $180,000 to pay for a drive with March. And the bank said, yes, we're going to sponsor in Formula One pay you the money for sponsorship because we will have more exposure in the newspapers. And this was all agreed with the CEO and all the marketing people there. And they went over to England and I signed my contact with March at the time. And then when I came back, everything was signed. Three days later, the bank manager called me and said, Nicky, come please, there's a problem. Because in the supervisory board of the bank, we had to pass this, this sponsorship to the supervisory board because of the amount of money. Your grandfather and his friend turned it down. I said, what? So I signed over there because you told me I can sign it because you said the supervisory board is not a problem and suddenly it is. He said, yes, unfortunately, nothing I can do. So then I went to see my grandfather. I said, uh, why did you turn this thing down? Because I don't want you to race. I want you to be in our business and I want you to see the louder name on the, on the economy side of the newspapers, not on the sports side. This is the way it is. I think it's unfair because I worked with these people long. And I think because you're my grandfather, you could, could have said yes. You said no, so now I have nothing. So and this was then the end of my relation with my grandfather anyway. 
And then I had to find the money again because I signed a contract. And I was educated, if I sign a contract, you have to fulfill it. So then I went to another bank <coughs> and said, could you give me a loan? And he said, why? Because I told him the whole story and you will never sponsor me because I had the other bank on my helmet. I said, yes, you're right. So, so, so no longer were you looking for a sponsor this late date. Now you're just looking for a loan there was no so way you could fulfill your obligations on the contract. There was no way in that short time that I find another sponsor. Mm -hmm. So I said, give me a loan, please, of this amount of money. And if you're unfriendly to me, I don't pay any interest for the loan because you have the, the publicity. I said, not a stupid idea. Went over to his bosses, said yes, but one problem we have, what happens if you get killed? Who pays the loan back? So I said, yeah, insurance. Okay. Then sign up an insurance for the $180,000, then raise, put the thing on, you don't have to pay interest. Five years, you have to pay the money back. So I just made it after my disaster with my grandfather to fulfill my contract and start in Formula One. To what extent, if at all, do you regret never having repaired the relationship with your grandfather? Honestly, I tried hard in the beginning. I was always friendly with him and whatever, but he, had, he was so different to me in his way that in the end it worked out as it was. I think it was correct. I went my way, he went his way. None of us gave up. These things can happen. Um, how much, if at all, do you believe he had good intentions and was just maybe handling it improperly? He was a very old-fashioned, very intelligent, highly rated industrial man. He had nothing to do with racing. He did not even understand in his world what that means. Racing driver is a low-key idiot from his point of view. What do you think he thought as you started having success No, he was not there anymore. Fortunately, okay. he died before. So he never saw my development. And Maybe in the end he would have respected it, but unfortunately he didn't see it anymore. How much did your parents come around to respect you for the success you had in racing? <clears throat> My parents then gave up to be against it when they thought that I was successful. But then the, the fear of my mother was always there to the end. My father handled it much better. Explain how you had to self-finance your early racing days. Self-finance was this, through this loan of the, of the bank. But I have to say, it was easier for me to get all these things going because of my grandfather's... The louder name in Austria was famous for being an industrial family and whatever. So when I came to a bank, I had at least a little easier entry because they knew what my, grand, what my parents and grandparents did. So to get a loan with all the insurances they needed, maybe it was a bit easier for me than if I would have been nobody, not with a louder name, I would say. The biggest problem I had is after I got this loan with the, with the insurance from this new bank, Raiffeisen, I raced one year for March, and then in the end of the year, March told me that they're gonna be bankrupt and they will not, cannot continue with me. And I tell you, when they told me this in November, the next season was coming up already, all the drivers were fixed. I said, now I'm finished. 
because you I, really thought that. Yeah, I thought till there was one moment which now I laugh about it, but I remember when I drove away from Bistov when I was told that it's over my Formula One career because they are not running anymore. I said, what do I do now? And there was a wall coming up in the town where I had to turn a left. And I said, the easiest way is to drive into the wall because I cannot handle this situation now. But this was only, thank God, one second. I turned left, didn't hit the wall. <laughs> no, it was not that bad that I was thinking long about it. But I came to that point, for one second this hit me. So I turned left and then, <clears throat> thank God, with this experience, it was good for my rest, the rest of my life because then I had to do something. So what I did then is I called BRM. BRM was a very famous racing car at the time where I knew that they always needed money to have a driver. And they called Louis Stanley. He was uh, a very famous in the racing group man who owns this team. And to make a long story short, Sunday night, Monte Carlo, Stanley said, come up, have dinner with me and my wife. I came up and he said, um, what about the money? I said, yes, uh, I'm working hard on it. There's some very good prospects because now I'm doing so well and blah, blah, blah. I said, look, I'm convinced that you are good. I give you a contract now without money. So he, won't, he wouldn't have paid me money, but I had a contract to the end of the year and an option for the following year, which he can pull, and my sponsorship problem was over. How did that make you feel when you're sitting at dinner and he relieved. tells you that? I was relieved like you do not believe, not believe. I was so happy that all this pressure was gone. And I drove home to Salzburg next day, Monday. And in Salzburg, my cousin had a little office with a secretary. And I used the secretary if I had to write some letters. And I always had this joke there to say, when Ferrari calls, call me right away. This was the ongoing joke for two years. I came home on Monday afternoon, and the girl said, Ferrari called. What? Ferrari called, here's the number. And then I came to see Ferrari, Mr. Ferrari. He said, doing a good job. He drove in front of my car in Monte Carlo. I want to sign you up. I want to sign me up, okay. What did you say? I said, Mr. Commentatore, <coughs> I have a little problem. Because I have agreed yesterday with Louis Stanley that I will continue to drive for BRM. I told him straightforward all my sponsorship problems. The old man looked at this guy, Gotzi, who was his second man. We sort these things out, he said. How are you going to sort these things out? We're going to sort it out. Sign here. <laughs> so I said again, you're going to sort it out. You know, I have a contract. Here's an option that I continue. Don't worry, we're going to sort this out. We have lawyers in England, we can do all that. How did you view um, Enzo Ferrari at that time? He was for me the most charismatic guy I've ever met in my life. Why? Because he was a very tough cookie, very tough, hard, demanding man for his team, for his car, and for himself. But he was an Italian with a big heart. So there was always this combination with him. If he respected you, and in the end he did respect me, he was hard with me for like everybody else, but at the same time I knew that he liked you. 
And when you had this relationship, it was fantastic to work with him. What were your impressions of the car, the Ferrari car, the first <coughs> time you drove it? I drove it in, sorry, in 73 it was. I drove it in 73 after the season was stopped. The first time in Fiorano with a Ferrari. Piero Ferrari's son was there as an interpreter because I couldn't speak Italian. And uh, the old man said to Piero, ask him how the car is. And I said, the car is Understeers like hell doesn't work in my normal, straightforward language. And Piero said, you can't say the car is Why? It is I said in English. The old man was listening. And I can't say this to my father. And I tell him. The car is no good. Tell him no good, if this is a better word. But this is Ferrari. Yeah, Ferrari standing there. And then uh, Piero said to him, Nicky said, the car is no good. This little bit I understood. And then the old man said, what did you say? A Ferrari is no good? Yes, it's shit, I said even then. To him direct. And then <laughs> I tell you, I said, shit, I made a mistake, I thought. And then nothing happened for 30 seconds. And it was the longest 30 seconds of my life. And then he said, okay, what is shit? It understands. Front end is wrong, doesn't turn in. The BRM I drove was a perfect handling car. Turned in, quick out, quick in. Engine was no good, but this was a good car. This is not a good car. So then he said, okay. Fogheri, who was the engineer in charge of the, at the time, come here. If Fogheri fixed this car and he has to fix the car, how much can you go quicker? If the understeer is gone, I said, three tenths. Maybe five, in Fiorano. Uh, of a second. Yeah. So the old man said, fine. And that amount of time means everything in racing? If, if you don't go five tenths quicker, you're fired. Why? Because you said the car is You say, if you fix it, you can go five tenths quicker. But if you cannot deliver what you ask me to do, then you have a problem. Goodbye. It took Fogheri five days to fix this front suspension. It was completely wrong. We did the first test. We were eight times quicker. So then my relationship with Fogheri worked out perfect. Ferrari was happy that I fulfilled my obligations. And I tell you, this was the first time where I saw after we delivered that he respected me. And I think this was very important. And from then on, I had a very good time with him. What transpired? the time you were with Ferrari during contract negotiations? He paid me no money at all because I was happy to drive a Ferrari. So I did a very good job in the first year. I won a couple of races and I was really getting up to the top. And then he wanted to give me a longer contract. And then I was looking around who gets which money of the other drivers in England. And Ronnie Peterson at the time was the highest paid driver going to Lotus. And then um, I knew that he was getting $250,000, $300,000 a year per year. And, uh, and this was the number I had in my head. And as I had zero before, then he said, no, let's make a new contract. And quante uh, vuoi, per guidare per me, what do you want? And I said, 300,000, uh, whatever it was, uh, 3 million shillings was the right way. And um, 
said, okay. Then he picked up the phone, called his accountant de la casa, and he says, Quantin lire tre milioni di shillini. How much in lire is three million shillings? The caterpillar told him the number. What? <laughs> Put the phone out, screamed at me like he did not believe. How can you ask this amount of money? It is a Ferrari. In a Ferrari, you have to, do, you have to be happy to drive a Ferrari. You know, fine, it's a Ferrari, but you still need a driver to, to move your car around quick. So I said, I want three million. That's it. And he looked at me, <laughs> called the De La Casa again, tried to argue forward and backwards a little bit up and down. He said, no, please, please pay because the other get the same amount of money. It's not unfair what I'm asking you. Ask the English guys what they get. In the end, he paid me. Yeah? And then he was happy anyway after because we won the World Championship. What about how Enzo Ferrari handled the crash made you ultimately decide to leave? So to make a long story short, <clears throat> I lost the championship in 76 because of my accident by one point. And then I, came, I called him right away from uh, Tokyo and said, I'm sorry I lost the championship, but for me the conditions to drive were unacceptable. Very simple. And he said to me, Nikki, I fully agree. I fully support what you have done. No problem. Then I had to stop for one month because I needed another operation here on my eye and I couldn't be there. Operation was finished. I came down to, to Ferrari again after one month and I said, now I'm ready, I'm full fit. Uh, so let's start again to work. And then he said, oh, we want to start to work, but I have taken some different decisions now. Mr. Reutemann is the number one driver and you are the number two driver. Uh-huh. Uh, my contract says I'm number one driver. Yeah, I know. I don't care. Right, man, I'm 100% sure. He's the better one than you. You will not recover as quickly as you think. Therefore, he's the number one driver. It's the first change I'm doing. So I said, good. Let me think about it. So I went out, walked around the car, <laughs> didn't know what to do. And uh, he had his office there. He was in there with Gotzi came back in and said, uh, if you don't fulfill your contract, which is very simple, I want you to let me go. Because if you don't want me as a number one driver, I don't accept, expect a number two driver position, let's finish the contract. Simple. You take somebody else up and I go. This was all in November. And then he said, no. Where do you want to go? McLaren. McLaren. McLaren was the competitive car at the time. Why, why do you think you could go to McLaren? I just spoke to Ron Dennis. Out of the office. So I left again. And now the Italian fear came up. Huh? Called me back in. <coughs> Said, you're right. Uh, mistake. Uh, number two driver, forget it. But nevertheless, Reutemann is in charge now of the whole development of the car, and he's in charge of all this, but I cannot ask you to be a number two. But then, the biggest mistake I did, I have to say now, in 77, when I left them, I didn't feel being treated right, in a way, because he put me in a number two position for it. 
So I didn't like that. So then I had an, another offer from Ecclestone, who had the Brabham team, to leave Ferrari and go to drive mm -hmm. the Brabham Alfa Romeo for a lot of money. And then he called me, I signed with Bernie. Ferrari called me to the factory and said, um, now let's sit down, discuss the future. And normally you do this with him alone, that he does not have to take a decision. But at that time, it was Fugari there, De La Casa there, the money man. He was there, Gozzi was there. And I was sitting on the other side of the table and he says, how much do you want to continue our relationship? Because I just won the world championship. And I said, nothing. What do you mean? No, I'm leaving. You're leaving? Are you crazy? How much do you want? I pay you any money you want. Sir, I have taken a decision. I'm going to drive for Eccleston, Braveheart for mayor. Unfortunately, I signed a contract. This was the right decision for me at the time. I'm leaving. Then he was not happy. What did he do? He screamed around. He talked with his guys in Italian, forward and backwards, but then in the end, uh, there was nothing to do. And when I left this meeting, I will never forget this. I felt light as a feather. Because all this pressure I had, which you take every day and you don't realize, suddenly was gone. The Ferrari pressure to perform. And I felt completely happy, I have to say. Looking backwards, it was a big mistake. I should have stayed. I should have asked him the same amount of money what Bernie paid me. I would have been more successful. But at the time, it was for me the right decision, even if it was wrong. Because of all this experience after the accident, how difficult was it to get his support back? He put right the money in the car, made me a number two, then I won again the championship. So in all this, I, I, I didn't want to forget. I had it in the back of my mind. But looking backward, it was wrong to leave him. What do you remember from waking up in a German hospital? I remember in the first, the first hospital, where, which was right to the circuit, I do not remember anything, but I know that, uh, that the, they told me afterwards. The team manager came to look at me. I said to him, my, my clothes is in the room, my car, you rent the car, key is there, please take care of it. But I can't remember this. So I was thinking still logically what, what has to be done and tell my wife that I'm fine. The first thing I remember is that I was put in a helicopter and uh, I heard the helicopter starting the, to run and uh, I, I woke up and I saw a doctor next to me with a bottle in his hand in a white cloth. Uh, I saw a face. So I said to him, where are we going and how long is the flight? So he said, 45 minutes, we go to Mannheim. Then I was gone again. <clears throat> then the next thing I remember was in the hospital, in the next one, where I heard a lot of voices which I could not identify. And there was one guy saying, I am Krachales, the doctor of Emerson Fittipaldi. He was a German guy who Fittipaldi had around for the races for him. And he, by accident, was on duty in that hospital where they took me to because this was the hospital for racing accidents of the Nürburgring. So finally I said, ah, there's one voice I know. Uh, and it's always better to speak to somebody you know than to other people. Sure. 
So it gave me a little bit of, of, of confidence. And then I remember the doctors talking about if we give him oxygen, he will die. So I said, oh, interesting remark. I will die. And uh, <clears throat> then only so fragments of discussions came to me. This I remember very well. But to make a long story short, after eight years or the 10 years, I met a doctor in Hockenheim and I asked him what happened to me really in this, in this uh, terrible accident. He said, you know, the reason you are alive is that you stayed conscious for a while and did not give up to go in a sleeping mode, which a lot of people do. If the pressure gets too hard, they simply get unconscious. And then you cannot proactive talk to your patient anymore. And the strength you had is that we could talk to you. And this is, was one of the secrets, I think, that I tried to stay awake, to follow the instructions, because for me it was clear. The only way is for me to stay alive if the doctors can keep me alive, because I can't do anything. I'm there anyway half dead. And this was really the, the, the part of my recovery, that I was always there to fully support what they asked me to do. How well do you recall the priest giving you your last rites? The nurse said to me, because I could not see anything, I could only hear, yeah, because everything was burnt. And uh, talking was difficult because I had a tube down my thing, I could only nod, yes or no, nothing more I could do. And when she said to me, uh, do you want a priest? So I said, why does she want me to ask her about the priest? And then she said to give you the last rite. And I said, oui. This I never heard in my life before. That I need somebody to give me the last right. But then I said, if there's anybody up there, why not? Let's use him. I mean, such terrible conditions. So I nodded, said yes, maybe it helps. Yeah? Because I want to stay alive anyway. And then nothing happened. Because the priest thought I'm unconscious. He was only standing next to me, maybe said to her, we'll be at the army or whatever, gave me the last rights and left again but I expected him to talk to me, like the nurse talked to me. He saw that the nurse talked to me and I, I nodded, but he didn't. He only touched me on my shoulder, gave me the last ride and left. And then I said, this can't be true. So I really got upset and said to myself, now I'm gonna stay alive because this was another thing which annoyed me in a positive way to really keep my brain on working, to stay there and follow the doctor's instructions. The doctors were forced to vacuum your lungs. What did that entail? This was terrible because they asked me, this is the way to, to the oxygen does not work. They explained it after again. But if you put a tube in your lung and we try to vacuum all these burns and carbon pieces, plastic pieces you had in your lungs, this can certainly help you to recover. It was a, a method which was never used before a lot of times was just invented. And, and then sure, I'm gonna do whatever they ask me to do. And then they said one important thing, as more often you do it, as quicker you recover. So they put a tube all the way down into your lung, and then they vacuum all these pieces, bits and pieces out of your lungs. So what happens, the lung completely collapses, mm. you cannot breathe, and the time they do it, you have no air, 
and you panic, basically. And it was really painful and horrible. But again, uh, they said, as more often you do it, do it. So then, I don't know, after half an hour, I said, let's do it again. The doctor said, no, 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 it's too early. Wait, because otherwise you're going to die because of that. So but I got a message and did it as much as I could to get quickly these things out of my lungs. And then after three days, more or less, I was sure that I can stay alive. I understand you don't remember the crash, but there was one time where you were smoking really strong marijuana in Ibiza. This where was 100 years you ago. A recollection? Yeah, uh, my cousin came and, and said to smoke this. I never did before, to be honest. And, uh, and Malene took a puff, I did. And then uh, I felt sick, like you do not believe. So I had to go to the bathroom. And before putting everything out, I was standing in front of my bathtub, whatever I call it. And I saw the hole where the water go through. And I suddenly got locked up in this hole and got back the same impression I had. At one stage at the hospital, I saw myself flying backwards into a big hole, very slowly, very leaf, very nice flight. And I said, hey, what's happening now? I'm going to die. Because it was such a nice feeling to get this impression going down. And I immediately switched on my brain and said, no, 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 you're dying, you're dying. Listen, listen to the doctors, listen to the doctors. And this came back only once in my life, like you just explained. When I looked at this hole, just trying to get rid of this stupid smoking thing, this came back once. And it was funny. It never came back before, only came back once and never again. What was the lasting physical damage from the crash? When the lung was fixed, after five, six days, I had to go over to the other hospital to do all this transplant. So all this part here is transplanted. The top end of my head was transplanted, and this part here was transplanted. They took the skin from my leg and put it on, so, which is a normal operation. But the problem was, when I woke up again after this operation, I found myself lying in a bed with the lights on on the top, my hands tied down to the bed, and the nurse sitting next to me reading a book. So I said, when I woke up, I said, what are you doing here? I watch you that you don't touch your face. Because if you touch your face, you're going to destroy the operation. You're not allowed to touch your skin. Therefore, we tie down your hands that by accident, when you sleep or whatever, you don't touch anything. I have to watch all that. Then I got a little better. Then I could stand up. And then there was another nurse, which was more friendly than the other one, and said to me, do you want to look in a mirror? And you had not seen yourself no, up until that point? No, operation. Mm -hmm. No way. So she got me out of bed, dragged me into this uh, uh, bathroom, and put me in front of a mirror because she had to guide me there because my eyes were closed. And then she says, try to, try to open your eye. So I took this one because it was less than So I opened my eye a little bit myself and looked in this mirror. I could not believe it. My head started, my shoulders up, and head was this size. 
And I only like, I could never see anything like this. Then I said to her, will this change? You're sure it will change. It is heat and water. You understand you burn yourself. It is all heat and water because if you have a bad accident like you, this is the way you look. So I said, how long does it take that this stupid water gets out of my face? Oh, she's, this I cannot tell you. And then I was looking again and I said, if I look through the rest of my life like this, what are you going to do? I, I talked to myself. Then I said, nothing I can do. This is the way it is. So I had an accident, I lost my ear. I look like this, thank God I'm alive. I accept it. This is the way it is. Sure, you can do cosmetic surgery, but what do you change? You cannot put a new face on me. So I have this effect now to people that I shock them. So, fine. I can live with it because I put myself through all this, and for me, it does not bother me at all. And then <clears throat> I had the problem that when I spoke to people, they always looked like this. I had the cap on because the cap is my protection for stupid people looking at me stupidly. They always want to see what the hell is going on under the cap and to protect myself, feeling more comfortable, I put a cap on. Mm -hmm. And even with a cap on, the people always talk to me like this. So what would you do if I talk to you like this? I said, can you look in my eyes? So there have been incidents where I was hurt but people don't understand to, this, to meet somebody who looks ugly, burnt, or whatever, treat him normal. Always, they, they always been treated, they treated me so bad that the only interest they had in me was to look what happens under the cap. And that really annoyed me. So when people came and they, I felt this, look in my eyes, you want to talk to me for Christ's sake. Yeah? And by the way, I have an accident for, as an excuse to look ugly. Some people don't have this excuse. They are <laughs> ugly. Yeah? I tell well, you, and that is the way I recovered my, my pro problems for myself. Sometimes being very nasty to other people. If they're nasty to me, I gave them this answer. What was the nastiest comment or question or headline that you remember from back then? I know one very well when I did my first press conference to announce my comeback in Monza. I had a huge press conference in Salzburg. I explained why I'm coming back, all the normal sporting questions. Then one guy said, there, uh, what does your wife say today how you look? I said, what do you mean? Now, is she not upset the way you look now? Can you imagine she wakes up every day in the morning next to you and you look like this? Are you serious? with this question, or is this a joke? No, I'm serious. So I left the conference, yeah, because this was hard. And then the guy walked after me after the press conference again and asked the same questions. Really? Yeah, I said, listen, if you don't stop now being so unpolite and rude, I'm gonna kick you in your post like you do not believe. And then he left. But this, is, this is, uh, was another funny experience how people treat you. How soon after your recovery did you begin thinking about whether or not you wanted to come back? After I was fit, my trainer was with me. I said, can I race or not? He said, yes, if we train hard, I think in two weeks we can get you ready. 
And then I had to take a decision, do I want to take the same chances again to kill myself or not? And as racing, driving was my job at the time, I always knew how dangerous it was right from the beginning. I was not surprised to have an accident, but I was happily surprised, it sounds funny now, that I'm still alive. Really? So, yeah, because I knew that what I was putting myself into. I saw every year one or two guys getting killed. So this was my world. So my accident, I was lucky, I was alive. So therefore I didn't have much problem to decide to go back to say, take the same chance as before, because I knew how dangerous it was. It was not that I was put something into which I didn't know what it was all about. So from this point of view, I said, if Dunkel tells me I'm fit, I can drive again, I really want to see how long it will take me to come back. I, I think you were listening to Bob Marley when you made Who? the decision. Bob Marley, yeah, yeah, the oh, music. Why? Because I like music. And Bob Marley at the time was my favorite singer and I liked the music, so I was singing to the music and then I decided, do you want to come back or not? So I just motivated myself into a good mood to take the decision and then I took the decision and off I went. And, and after the crash you told yourself you'd stop making stupid mistakes. Like what? Uh, it's very simple. If you've been through this and you know how close you have been to die, then I said, now I have to take some consequences out of this. And this applies for everybody, even today. How many people hurt themselves or die because they are not careful enough or stupid or make mistakes because they drink and drive a car or whatever. So I said to myself, after this experience, I will never ever do anything in my life where out of stupidity of myself or not thinking, I risk something. So I'll give you a simple example. How many people broke their arm in the shower when they showered and slipped and fell down? A lot of people can do that. So I said, I will never slip in the shower because when I go in, I do one step, check the other step, and don't take stupid chances to hurt myself or even kill myself. And even driving road cars or flying, all these kind of things. I, I know that I have to be responsible, that I will do nothing wrong to hurt anybody or myself. So why six weeks after the crash so soon do you make the decision to come back? Because I thought as quick I go back, as easy as it must be. Because if you stay home, and thank God I was ready after 40 days because it could have been all this healing process takes much longer. But thank God after 40 days I was able to drive. So then the first thing was, let's get in and see how much is left now of fear, how can I overcome this? And I thought at the time, which is right, if you would have an accident, maybe it was not your fault today in a road car, the best thing for you is to overcome this risk you took or you had to yourself, get in and drive as quick as you can again. Because if you get back onto the steering wheel being in charge, then you can overcome your fear. If you sit back and you cannot and you worry forward and backwards, was it my fault? What can I do different? You need to get back into your old business to overcome all this. And therefore the timing, the shorter it is, the better it is. So then on Friday morning I turned up there Pressure like you do not believe, the newspapers, the journalists, the press, can he drive, can he not drive, medical checks, all these things were spilling up to in the morning like you do not believe. 
Then I got out of the pits, tried to get out of the pits, and I could not drive. I put it in second gear, and suddenly I had a block in my whole brain. Being frightened, I saw myself driving through a guardrail, which never happened, and I was completely blocked that I could not drive this car. So I slowly went back into the pits, being completely confused what happened now, because in Fiorano I could drive, and here I cannot. Mm-hmm. So I had to get out of the car. I told the team, unfortunately, I don't feel well. I have to go back to the hotel. Went back to the hotel and tried to explain to myself what happened now. Why is suddenly everything coming back from the accident, which never bothered me before? Then I said, maybe after a sleepless night, let's do it different. Go there tomorrow, Saturday, final day for the Italian Grand Prix, and drive there on your own. Don't worry about the competition, the race, the qualifying speed and whatever. Get in the car and try to get confident back that I'm handling the car. Got in the car, didn't look at any other time, said to my mechanics, don't show me any lap times. I only want to drive. And this was the right decision. So the pressure was gone. I could get in, concentrate on driving, got quicker and quicker and quicker. Fear was not there at all. And when practice was over, I was quick as Ferrari. So right the money they were behind me. So that gave me certainly confident. So I gave myself too much pressure before, being ready too soon, therefore I could not drive on Friday. Mm-hmm. And then from then on it worked pretty normal. The uh, other significant crash that you had in your life was that of a plane in the uh, airline that you ran. <coughs> How did you find out one of your planes crashed and 213 passengers and 10 crew members were killed? Lauda Air had a six months old 767 brand new airplane. Uh, the flight was coming from Bangkok to Vienna. And I was called at 10 minutes to 10 in the evening from the news um, uh, television channel. And the lady said to me, uh, we had just had a report that one of your planes crashed just outside of Bangkok. So I said to her, let me check. Called the company and said, get in touch with the plane. And they said, we can't. So, and then slowly the messages came and it was right that the 767 came down. And um, then I went to the office in the evening and we all got together and we thought, I've never been confronted with a terrible accident like this, what are we gonna do, let's make a plan. So I took a plane next day, came down there, the authorities waited for me, took me in a helicopter to this place which was on the border to Burma basically, in some mountain places where the plane was crashed. So we landed, took a car, drove up, and suddenly I saw some white stuff. I looked out of the window, like napkins and other things on the ground. This is my napkins. And as closer you got, as bigger the pieces of the airplane were, because the airplane came all the way down, was spread over five kilometers. And then I saw this whole terrible mess. And um, the impression was, first of all, my airplane, what happened. And then I saw the local 
people there taking rings and jewels from bodies lying around in the jungle mm. and luggage and pieces all over the place. I saw handbags of cabin attendants, which I knew. So it was terrible. But this was a scene which I will never ever forget uh, because for me this was the worst ever. There was my accident, nothing against what I saw down there. But I had a Boeing representative with me, which I took right from Vienna, uh, who went there because I asked him in Vienna, have you ever seen a crash? He said, yes, to so come with me. And there we looked around. And we saw one engine here, the other engine there, and uh, the frame of the airplane and some other places. And um, then I asked him if he can find out anything here, what he could see. He said, no, it's all a mess. And I saw on one engine the trust reverse deployed and on the other one, which was two kilometers away, the trust reverse not deployed. And I said to him, why is this? He said, comes up from 28,000 feet, don't worry about it, it is the way it is. Crashes into the ground and that's the way it is. So, then we went home and then I was very proactive telling all the time if there was no new news. Why? Because I was called by, by relatives to victims every day, about 50, always asking me the same question. Mr. Lauda, why? And I immediately realized what is the most important for these people in all this sadness, losing one of their kids, husbands, wives, whatever, to give them a reason. So, therefore, I pushed hard, like, you know, to not believe. I said, in the first place, I said, if this is the responsibility of Lauda Air, that this airplane crashed, I have to resign immediately because I was not able to let an airplane fly safely from A to B. And then, unfortunately, for eight months, we had to wait before Boeing found out on a test bed where they put the trustworthy system of the 767, an O-ring fell out of a valve, which pushed the trustworthy out, which can never do this when you're flying, instead of holding it in. So, eight months later, then finally the cause was out. It was a design failure on the trustworthy system which brought these 223 people down. But when the investigators initially came out with findings in advance of that, um, alleging it was your fault, you were immediately unconvinced? No, because we, sure it could have been our fault too, but I, I pushed hard, as I right. said from day one. I don't care whose fault it is, right. I want to know. I had to go to a funeral in Bangkok where the last 23 victims could not be identified, put in one big graveyard. Down there, I got a phone call then from Boeing that I should come up straight from Bangkok to Seattle. They know now the cause and I should fly the simulator. So I flew straight up there, tried the simulator, as I was the pilot at the time, I could do all that. and. Uh, when the fault happened, the airplane turned around and just crashed. 
So then I went to Boeing and said, uh, fine, what are you going to do now? And they said, yes, Mr. Lawyer, it's not that easy. We have to look now with all the lawyers what explanation we're going to do. We know we have to do that. And I said, uh, how long does it take? It takes a couple of months. Why a couple of months? Do we know the cause or not? Yeah, yeah, we know the cause. But we have to make sure that there's no risk in getting sued and this and that. We have to find the right wording. So I cannot wait three months. I don't want to. So what we can do is following. Take a 767 up with two pilots, exploit the trust in 28,000 feet, and if nothing happens, then I want to be with them on the next flight and look at it myself. You can't do that because your plane crashed. Yeah, yes. But then make a release now. Because why do I have to have all the responsibility since eight months on my back for this airplane crash? And it was, not, it was a design problem, not my problem. So please do it. They released on the same day the, the cause of the crash and then explained to everybody, because I said, for me, the biggest problem are the victims. These people need an answer, and the answer has to be understood why they all got killed. And this is it's your responsibility to tell these people. And then in the end, I took unfortunately eight months, then we gave everybody the explanation why this accident happened. So all the time delays of airplane crashes is the worst for the victims. If they do not get an answer, why I've lost my wife, friends, or kids. What got you into uh, the aviation business was when you uh, retired from uh, racing, um, and it was uh, 1979. What did you say in conversation to your then team head, Bernie Ecclestone, that led to him tearing up your contract for the next year? Well, it was very simple. Bernie is a hard cookie, there's no question. He knows his business. I was driving for him, and I negotiated a new contract with him, where I asked him for two million, which was a lot of money at the time. And I, even when I signed for this two million contract, I did not really feel a relief or happiness. It was a normal day for me. Then I went to Montreal, uh, new car, new engine for Bernie, looked out of the window, misty day, terrible day, didn't feel well, got in the car and suddenly the curtain came down, I don't want to drive anymore. Surprised me like you do not believe, no real sign of it except that I was miserable and I'm sometimes miserable. And then I said, you can't do that, you just signed a two million contract, just keep on going, keep on going. So I did another three laps. And I realized, no, don't want to. I do not want anymore. Got out of the car. Bernie, I need to talk to you. I'm retiring. What? I'm retiring. Are you sure? This is an emotional decision. Think about it twice. Don't make a stupid decision now. I give you time now. Don't practice in the afternoon. Think about it carefully. Don't make a mistake. Which I thought is very nice of Bernie. Then I thought again about it. Bernie, you cannot change my mind, I'm retiring. And he said, ah, I saved two million. <laughs> <laughs> and then I retired for good, the first time. The second retirement was a real retirement, not because of danger, 
was simply, I knew that all my life I cannot race. I have to stop sooner or later anyway. And when I stopped the second time, I was sure it was the right decision. Yet Bernie, who uh, was thrilled years earlier to save two million on you, made you a six million dollar huh? offer, and you still turned it down. Yeah, I turned it down because when I came back, I went to McLaren. Yeah, because Ron Dennis was the right man to call me at the right time, coming out of retirement for two years, mm -hmm. and um, and then I started all over again, which. Again, I wanted to prove to myself, can I race after two-year retirement? Because nobody has done this before, and I have to say it turned out okay. I won another championship. I spent two days in Monaco with Nico Rosberg shortly following his uh, retirement from Formula One. Obviously wins the 2016 World Championship, is a Mercedes Petronas driver, and then abruptly, unexpectedly retires. Um, how fair do you think your criticism was of him? I think it was, from my point of view, completely normal because I'm in charge with Toto Wolf about our whole team. And if we get hit by our brand new world champion in November, that he's going to retire, it put us in a very difficult situation. Because we need the strongest pair of drivers to continue to win. And he left us just in the last moment. Even I respect his decision. The timing for us was really bad. And uh, therefore, I criticized him from the team point of view that if we do not find a quick replacement who is at least as good as he was, we're going to be in trouble. And I have to say, my criticism is right. He called me a couple of times and said, look, this is my view, being in charge of the team. As a racing driver, I understand. I retired once with Bernie in the same way. Yeah, and then he had no driver. So I did bad things to him too. So if he would have criticized me, I had to respect it. Uh, right, because Nico made some comment that uh, what you said to him privately was different than what you were saying uh, publicly. No, I said to him privately, understand your decision. Yeah. Yeah, which I have to. I have no choice anyway. But the situation we are in, if I look from the other side, where I'm responsible for 1,200 people, it's our decision. How do you feel about him today? I'm quite fine with him. I'm fine with him because I tell you, we have reacted very well, I have to say, from the team point of view, to get Bottas because Bottas is doing a very good job, yeah? a similar job than Nico does. Luis and, and Walter is pushing each other hard. So from the team performance point of view, we could replace, even in the last moment, Nico with Bottas properly. To what extent did anybody at all think there was even a remote possibility that he would retire? There was no, no sign whatsoever. I think he retired really because the pressure of Lewis was too hard for him to cope with in the future. Because Lewis is a tough cookie to drive for. And then he won the race with all these tricks, Lewis holding back and the others coming. and. It was tough for him the whole year because Lewis was the world champion to get beaten. Uh, it was a hard work. Do you think he's pleased with his decision now? Yes, he looks very happy, pleased. He makes no sign of any regret. He seems okay. If you had to guess, what do you think the likelihood is he ever comes back? Never, never. Really? He continues like absolutely never. Why? Because he's so into his family, he seems to be so happy getting now the second kid. 
he is a he's a different person. He he took it all up because he wants to prove to himself that he can be a world champion, like his father. And I think as soon as he achieved it, he has no more motivation to continue. How did you handle the competition between Nico and Lewis Hamilton? It was very difficult because they certainly, in the beginning everything was fine, but it's more competitive. They both got against each other because the last three years we had a Mercedes car which was quicker than any other car and we only raced each other. Mm -hmm. The competition was only between Nico and Lewis who is going to be world champion. And they were lifelong friends before They were this. before, but as harder the competition gets, as more nasty they got to each other and they had no more relationship, I would say, the whole of last year, in 16. And this for us was difficult sometimes because they worked so hard against each other, that even the engineering groups worked so harsh against each other. So we had in the team a funny situation, which I think we handled very well, even if they crashed each other out in Barcelona and had some terrible damage to the team, not scoring any points, uh, we handled it okay. How did it affect the team? We had huge competition between the team, which in the end was sometimes too much. But we put some regulations in, we told them Especially in, in Barcelona, when they crash each other off, this is unacceptable for Mercedes. You know, we have to win. One of you guys have to win. You cannot have each other off. So we had some rules put in, they understood. Uh, what were the rules? You, you are not allowed to. You have to pay penalties if you do it again. Or were we thinking of releasing you of your contract? Because we are team players here. We're not, the team cannot destroy each other. This was the thing. And Toto came up with some good rules, and in the end, we had peace again. They fought hard, and the accidents got reduced between themselves. In what ways were they nasty to each other? They had no relation, which is always bad. So they were so bad that they didn't even say hello in the morning to each other. Uh, they, I don't expect them to have breakfast together. If they don't like each other, you don't have to sit down and have breakfast. But they had a the relationship was really bad. It affected. Luis mainly and Nico. So it was fine, but not easy. How did it affect Luis? Luis got so upset about him that, 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 that they, even on their performance, sometimes they lost because they're playing tricks to each other and, and one didn't show the other one what setup he's using, which is bad for the team again, because we both want to go forward, not only one. So they played all the tricks you can do, which I understood. I did, did myself too, but for the team, it was pretty tiring. When the relationship was at its worst, I believe you sat down with the two of them in a room together. Um, take me into that room and what was discussed between the three of you. No, we had, uh, we had discussions. I have to remember when, yeah, in Barcelona, when they hit each other. Uh, Toto and myself, First of all, explain to them that you can't do that, very simple. And then the question was, whose fault was it? Because Nico was in the lead, Luis tried to pass him, Luis went to the inside, Rosberg blocked him on the inside, then they crashed and both cars were out. And this was in the first lap, so not very clever. And then the big discussion was, Whose fault was it? And for me, it was clear that Luis was too aggressive, 
going to the right, hit the grass, couldn't stop his car, and then hit him off. Even Rosberg moved. And um, I said right away, straightforward, what is my opinion? And I said, if I have to choose between the two, it's more Lewis's fault than Nico's fault. And um, Lewis did not appreciate that because he was in a different opinion. And then... Uh, what did he say? He said, why do you criticize me? I said, excuse me, I cannot accept that you guys crash and then uh, we have nothing and nobody's fault it is. For me, there has to be somebody's fault. And uh, then Luis really got upset and then Nico said, yes, you win, it's your part two, you move to the inside. Why did you not leave room enough for him? He said, why should I? I want to win the race. So, and then I asked Luis to come down to Ibiza to speak to me personally, which he certainly did. And then uh, I said to Luis, that red light flashing on the back of the cars today means that you do not have full power because the battery pack is not putting electricity in the engine. When that light flashes, you know you have 150 horsepower less. Therefore, we have this light installed, all the cars. And I said to Louis, when you followed him, did you see the red light flashing? Sure I did. Why did you go on the inside? You know he has 150 horsepower less. Why didn't you pass him easy on the outside? <laughs> yes and no and yes and no. But the good thing with me, I think, is that apart from the engineers and the team, I can speak the driver's language. So if I speak to him, I ask him these questions, maybe I'm wrong. But at least we speak the same language and we have respect to each other. Before you signed Lewis Hamilton, um, I believe you went around the paddock, asked people for their feedback on him. What sort of comments did people make? As I did not know him, I asked him, is he an easy guy to get on or is it difficult? Because I had to find a way to, to talk to him. And some people said he's difficult, some people said he's easy. But um, then in Singapore, I had to meet him. I wanted to meet him. And I went up to the paddock, said, I want to talk to you. And he said right away, yes. And he said, yes, come up to my room. Uh, hotel so-and-so at 2 in the morning because practice was so late. So I said, I've never been up at 2 in the morning <laughs> at somebody else's hotel room. But nevertheless, I turned up there. And Luis did not know me. I did not know him, apart from you know, who we were. Yeah. And I have to say, straightforward, same language. He was completely open, transparent, asked me the right questions. For example, he asked me one question, why the hell should I leave McLaren and come to you if you are now fifth in the Constructor Championship? So McLaren is a much more competitive car. What did you say? I was for 10 seconds speechless. I said, what should I tell him now? He's right. And I said, but what would happen if you would win a world championship in a Mercedes? Because you can then prove to the whole world that you being the first world champion in a Mercedes. And then I thought, ah, this was half of my uh, victory to make him think in that direction. And then I 
I got him really on the competitive edge to say, join us. And, and, and I tell you, I will do everything I can do to give you a competitive car. This I can assure you. With all my efforts, the whole team, we will support you like I do not believe. And um, years later, or one year later, I met him again and said, I was right, no? What do you mean? I said, I'm going to give you a competitive car. <laughs> because the last three years, or the last four years, he had the most competitive car he could get. And in McLaren, it went the other direction. So I have a good relation with him. I know him. I like him. We speak the same language. We have respect of each other. Good. What do you respect about him? He's the quickest guy. This is, um, for me, most talented guy around today. He's easy to handle, in a way, for me at least. Even he's completely different to all the other guys. <coughs> he enjoys life in a different way than anybody else. He travels around between the races. He tweets from everywhere. <laughs> he comes back, he's there, he's fit. You need to give him this freedom that makes him strong. Some other guys do it completely different. They train every day, they concentrate. But Luis is Luis. I like him. He performs fantastically. One of the very few people you liked, a smaller number of people you respected, and the only person you envied, uh, the legend uh, James Hunt. Explain that, if you don't mind. Hunt, I knew from Formula 3 days. We were going up the same development, more or less, trying to be a Formula 1 driver. So we liked each other because we were doing it together. Then I got my first chance in Ferrari, which I blew him off in a way because he was suffering of getting a proper Formula 1 car. Nevertheless, we stayed in a very good relationship. Our relationship only turned down a bit when I had my accident, Monza onwards, I came back and he was really competitive because he had a fantastic, quick McLaren. My Ferrari was already suffering from performance and he drove on a level outstanding. And when this competition gets that bad, then you don't talk to each other anymore because you want to win races. So we only had a little downturn when he really beat me in my communication level. But when he won the championship by half a point in front of me, I said to him, I'm more happy that you are the world champion than any of the other guys. So, and that really shows how good our relationship has been. What did you envy about him? He was a fantastic personality. He was funny. He was a, a man which you never forget when you know him. So James, I mean, there are very few people which I say they are still alive. You know, even they are dead since many years. If you can say this about somebody, he has been outstanding because the people you forget, you forget. But the people who, especially for my life, and Hunt was a big part of that, uh, I will never forget. He's still alive for me. What do you remember from sharing a London flat with him during your... Formula three days? A lot of, uh, how you call it politely, intercourse. <laughs> <laughs> Not with me, I have to say. <laughs> Who got more girls? He, 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 absolutely. He beat me by far. Hunt was, he didn't care, I tell you. He was, whatever he could get, he took. 
he had fun and he enjoyed himself. But in these days, we all had fun, I have to say. It doesn't depend on how many. We don't count them. But it was, it was the typical racing driver's life where the danger was difficult. So we knew we had to live extensively in the time we had available, <laughs> which anybody would do. We were not different to other people. And it was a good time, I have to say. Tell about your birthday party in Vienna and then testing the next day in France. Birthday party in Vienna was funny because I was asked by a guy here I knew to do one. I invited James certainly to come along. He did come along. I went home at 11 because I knew next day I had to fly down to Porica and test. And uh, James asked me if I can give him a lift. I said, yes, certainly we'll do that. And I said, listen, you be at 7 on the airport because I have to leave. I can't be late for this test. Ferrari will fire me. So James said, yes, 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 I'm coming. And five to seven, he turned up at the airport with the same lady, which was dressed in all white. I remember this very well, like today. And all her white clothes was a bit dirty all over the place. I don't know what they have done. <laughs> he had his radio on his shoulder. He always had this radio with him where he played music and turned up completely pissed on the airport. So the James, you are a disaster. Get in the plane, let me take off, and off we go. Down to Porica, James was sleeping. I had to wake him up with the plane, we're here. We dragged him out and off he went to McLaren, I went to Ferrari. I went out in three laps, my engine blew up. Said, Thank God the engine blew up, now I have five hour rest. For an engine change, I could sleep a bit. And, um, and uh, then the practice went on. And suddenly, there was big panic, a car crashed, practice was stopped. I saw this McLaren parked on the right side of the long straight, and I said, there's not the tires on, the wheels on, there are no marks, there's nothing what happened. And I got out of the car, and James was sitting in his car sleeping. I said, are you nuts, you idiot? <laughs> oh, Nicky, I'm so tired, I can't drive anymore. So this is, was a typical James testing day after a long night in Vienna. The lunch you had with him much later on um, at King's Road. Um, what do you remember from that? I remember very well when James retired, he put himself, unfortunately, in a very terrible personal situation. I think he was drinking too much. He lost all his money because his brother invested his money into Lloyd's company, which went all the way down. The share price went down. So James ended up with no money, completely broke. And uh, I called him because my relationship told me to do that. I said, I'm coming over to England, let's meet. And he turned up in King's Road in a cheap restaurant with a bicycle with no air in the tires. He looked completely finished, long hair, clothes dirty, and sat down. And I said to him, are you nuts or what? What do you mean? Look at yourself. Get up and look in the mirror. Yeah, I know. James, you're going to kill yourself if you continue like this. I have no money. How much money do you need? I don't know. 300 euros, uh, pounds. I'll give you 300 pounds. But do something. Don't drink. I give you the money. I support you all the way. But come back. You have to come back. I had to do this a second time, and then James was better. Then he was clean, like you do not believe, 
worked for the last three years of his life for BBC, commenting the races, completely fit like you do not believe. And uh, we all were happy that James was back with us. And then unfortunately, he called his doctor in the middle of the night. I was told that his chest hurts. The doctor said, don't worry, lie down. And the poor guy had a heart attack and got killed. So it was really a sad moment for me personally, because I don't think it was necessary that he, if he would have, the doctor would have been there, I might have saved him. What was your reaction when you heard he passed away? Not terrible. I was shocked because because of what the experience I had with him, bringing him back from being broke and finished to an absolute perfect life, not drinking at all, not smoking, nothing, fit like anybody else, and then die, this was terrible. Family, you got uh, divorced uh, you know, many years ago, and after that, you made the comment that you'll never marry again. Um, what made you change your mind? So I got to know Birgit, my, who is my wife, I knew her for eight months, or we dated eight months, and I had a kidney problem. And uh, I asked my son, Lucas, if he would test to donate me a kidney. He came to Vienna, did a test, and his kidney did not fit. Let the doctors say it is good to put in me. And then Birgit said, I'm going to do the test. And then I said, why would I do the test? because I would donate your kidney. I said, you will never ever donate my kidney, because why? I'm ill, I know you now since eight months, why, I will never do that. I do the test. She did the test and she did fit. And then she said, I want to donate the kidney. I said, no. And then she gave me for about three months, always the same impression. I do it for you because I love you, and this is the way it is. She never was frightened or asked questions. Is it dangerous for me? What can happen to me? Never. It was just a pure approach. I will do it. And then after a long time thinking about it, then we went. Then when they pushed her away in the hospital to start the operation, I was praying that please nothing should happen to her. Nothing, nothing, because things, an operation is always an operation. And then, then I got her kidney, and now this kidney works 100% right. I have the same creatinine level like you have, if you're fit. And it is fantastic. So after three years, four years, I married her. But because not of the, of the kidney donation, because I knew that she was the right uh, woman to marry. And then uh, we got twins, Max and Mia. So I was really lucky that uh, all these things happened today. And with my Malene, which I have a very good relation with her, Birgit and Malene get on very well in Ibiza. And, and how does that work? Because I understand the three of you will go out together. Sometimes. Yeah, but, but, but it is mainly to say, first of all, Birgit, yes. But Malene has always been, like I explained before, she always wants that the other people are happy, ha happy. She doesn't give any restrictions to anybody because of her behalf. So there are very few people around the world who say, I want you to be happy, and I put myself happy in another position. And therefore, there was no problem at all that she will get on with Birgit, and she did from the first day. 
And for Easter, for example, we have all the kids together in Marlene's house. Lucas has a kid, Matthias has two kids. So we're all together celebrating uh, Easter uh, in a fantastic way everybody put together. So you mentioned you have uh, two twins, Max and Mia, boy and girl. Um, you have older um, children as well. Um, to what extent, looking back, would you have liked to have been around more for your older kids or around for them in the same way you are? This is a very younger? theoretic question because it was not possible. Because the times with Malene and Lucas and Matthias was my racing, was my job to make it simple. And I had to be different to be able to fulfill my job, like I explained in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Now I have more time. I have no risk at all, and I now I enjoy uh, my little kids to that they grow up with me or I grow up with them because uh, it keeps me young, I have to say, and it is fantastic what my life is today. But I do not regret the past because I had no choice in the past. It was different times and this is the way it was. With Lucas and Matthias, I have a fantastic relationship, so everything in the end worked out very well. What's it like for you now having kids uh, later on in life? Fantastic. I mean, this is unbelievable because every day there's new, new experience with them. Uh, you grow up, the way they, let the, they speak their language, the way they understand things, it is every day a new positive surprise. What, what do you like most about it? <clears throat> like most about it, that, they, that, that I really feel them strongly. I think it's the other way around too. Uh, we have this typical father and mother relationship, Birgit freaks out of something they have done, not me. And then they look at me, and if I think if Birgit has done a little bit too much, then I always say, and then the kids laugh again. So you're kind of the soft one. Yeah, the... No, no, I'm 100% the, I'm the, I'm the soft one, because she's, she's, she's a tough cookie with them, and therefore we have this good relationship. I mean, the kids like me very much, Birgit says, um, if I pick them up from school, which I had to do yesterday, if I have time, I do it. And then the kids said to me, now we go and eat ice cream. Sure, we go and eat ice cream. I picked them up from school, now we have ice cream. So we come home. Where have you been? Mia says, ice cream with daddy. You went ice cream? I told you, there is no ice cream because too much sugar and forward and backwards. Birgit, hello. If you make me responsible, pick the kids up from school, which normally I don't do, I decide then what is good for us. So we go and eat ice cream. If you send me again, I do the same thing again. But this, I guess, is normal marriage discussion. We were talking about this a little bit at the start of the interview. Um, you've obviously had fabulous uh, success during your life and career. With that comes great wealth. How do you view money? <clears throat> For me, it's easy to say. Uh, if I have money, it's fine. If I don't have money, I can adjust always to the, to the money situation. I have no problem traveling tomorrow with scheduled planes, if this is the case, because I always had my feet on the ground. If I'm able to fly a private plane, I certainly prefer it. Easier, nicer but I can do without it. It's not, it's, I don't have the importance I want a private plane. Sure, I want a private plane, if I can afford it. In this relationship, I'm always unaffected by all this so-called wealth. 
because I know if it's here, I use it. If it's not here, I can be as happy as before. What's an example of you loaning somebody money over the years, and how did that impact the relationship? I think loaning money to somebody impacts no relationship. It's dangerous even, I think. So because the first question is, why do you need money? So there can be some reasons why people need money. And if I do understand them, I give it to them. But for me, a loan is always bad. Either give it because you have it and you give it to them and that's it. But the loan things, I had a cousin once who was sick and he asked me for money. I loaned it to him. He said, I'm going to give it back to you. He never gave it back to me. So I learned my lessons out of this. But I give money if I really think they need the money and I can help them. And I have no problem with them, but not as a loan. When it comes to investing, um, I understand from uh, talking to, I guess, your money man, you like taking big risks. Um, why? Because I always took risks. I've never been, let's say, called normal. I'll tell you one thing. We are living today in a, in a very streamlined world that everybody thinks if we need WhatsApp or Twitter or whatever, uh, what is the President Trump using? Yeah, Twitter. Huh? Twitter. Twitter, right. This is a good example that if the President uses it, then everybody has to use it. And uh, if, this, if I understand that these streams are happening, I, funny enough, always think the opposite. Because even in my racing competition, if I understood that one guy is doing one thing and he's not successful, why should I follow him? So I have this learning out of my long experience, even in business decisions or private decisions, if everybody goes one direction, I think immediately the other way. And I tell you, from decisions I've taken the other direction, I would say I was 90% right. It takes a while for the people who all streamline in one direction. Ooh, there's one guy who's doing it the other way. I'm quicker thinking the other way first than to follow what everybody thinks is right. Because that, that gets me revved up up here, what is right and what is wrong. So whenever these developments in the world get, I first of all think the other way around and as a lot of people are going in one direction. I'm much quicker going in the other one. Thank you very much. Thank you. That'll do it for this edition of the In-Depth Podcast. You can check out video clips of my time with Lauda, including a tour of Vienna and an all-access pass to the Belgian Grand Prix at youtube.com slash Bensinger. You can also check out content on social, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now TikTok at Graham Bensinger. Before you go, please leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.